0: We pray you bless the time we spend in your Word, bless the time we spend in fellowship. Pray that it be fruitful for our growth and edification. Help us to um, study the Scripture in a way that transforms us, not just increases our knowledge, but helps us understand who you are and how we live in the gospel more clearly, Father. So I pray that you would bless our reading, bless our thought process as we do this together. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, so my agenda. With you, everybody, got your your outline. Not as many blanks this time. Um, I am shifting the focus a little bit in strategy, which is also why we're kind of trying to change the seating arrangement. I'm just trying to make this a little bit more like a a fellowship and not just another Bible study. It's still a Bible study, but I want to make it a little bit more interactive. Um, Of course, it's it's fairly interactive already, but maybe this will (coughs) help that go a little better. And so some of this, I'm not just going to give you a blank to fill in. I want us to hash out together as we walk through And my agenda is twofold. One, uh, I do want to teach you Hebrews, but also I want to teach you good study technique for reading any book of the Bible. We're going to do it in Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the more difficult. So if you gain any proficiency in Hebrews, you'll go back and read Paul and say, oh, this is totally clear. Um, So hopefully that will be the side result of this study. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to Hebrews, and... The first blank there. The first question is always, what is the context? I was about to get really disappointed. Setting, Setting, you know, setting is good, but context is the word I'm going. I had a professor in my undergrad who, his famous line was, the context is the message. And uh, basically, if you didn't know the answer to a question on a test, He's right, the context is the message. And he'd probably give you a few half points <laughs> just because he said that. But uh, his point was the context really does shape fully how you understand the message of the book. And so as we think about Hebrews, do you remember what the big picture context was for the book? You went over that not super in depthly, but at least in general last week. What's the Jesus main idea? All right, that's better. the main theme. What I'm looking for is the background. What, when we say context, so like if you read, if you ever read a text message that wasn't for you? Like someone miss sent it to you, and you're like, what in the world are you talking about? And then they're like, oh, sorry, that wasn't for you. You still want to know what it was about, though, don't you? You're like, I, I want to know the comment strand that this came from. I, the context is that comment strand. And so for the book of Hebrews... That's that's the um, background. That's who wrote it, why, what's the basic problem it addresses, and so what is that basic problem that we went over last week for Hebrews? Persecution. Persecution in what form? Um, They're pressuring Jews to come back to Judaism. Okay. So who is pressuring who to go back to Judaism? Jews. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. actually the judaizers are christians who want to over jewishish jewish the christian faith if that makes sense <laughs> i make up words all the time y'all just don't know i just pretend like they're real um <laughs> kind of like the sacred name people <laughs> yeah something like that okay so i've totally lost where i was it, it's just normal jews persecuting christian jews to come back to Christianity. Oh, I'm sorry. Come back to, back to come back to Judaism. To leave Christ and come back to Judaism. How a word in there. So a big context. Jewish Christians are being persecuted by Jews to turn away from Christ. Now, you remember why we said that was a particularly difficult kind of persecution? Mm-hmm. Jewish Christians... Are being persecuted by Jews, with the end goal that they would turn away from Christ to create apostasy, which is that word we'll see come up in Hebrews—that turning away, walk away from the faith. That's what they want them to do. Um, and the question, the next question was, why was that a particularly hard type of persecution? Cultural within, because it's within, it's family, it's mom persecuting daughter, father son, or son father uncle cousin your your people persecuting you not outside it's not rome when rome persecutes you what does that cause your people group to do they consolidate right? they, the common enemy builds unity to have that kind of persecution this kind of persecution's more painful because it doesn't build a default unity not at least in your typical places so where would your typical places for unity be when you experience persecution? Family, right in the home. Your social structure, but for these early Christians, they're having to break those social structures and create a new one in the church. Now that allows them to consolidate, but uh, in the early days of Christianity, uh, it's really just some Jewish people believe in Christ. They don't have a solid, separate Established culture yet. Like we, we do. We don't think of Jews and Christians as being the same thing. I and mean, that's clearly distinct for us. For the early church, Jew and Christian were really different ways of talking about the same thing for the Christians. Now, the Jews would say, no, no, there's a sect version of us. That's not true. All right, so, this persecution is particularly difficult. Now, so that's what we're going to do every week. What's the big context? Then what's the little context? The little context is what's going on in the paragraph we're reading. So if you see the study notes there, so we're starting in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3b. So you might not have a 3b in your Bible. Just to give you some super academic side notes, um, first, verse numbers and chapters came later. So when Hebrews was written, there's not a chapter 1. Uh, There's not a chapter 2, 3, 4, 13 it's just he wrote there's no verse numbers um in fact punctuation as we think about it wasn't there either uh, so that's all modern so when we put these verse numbers in they're you know in a sense arbitrary and for us we paused our last study in the middle of a verse but in my translation that was at a period so we read chapter one through verse the first half of verse three so 3A is just a Bible scholar's way of saying the first part. It's not any more precise than that. And when you say 3B, you just mean the second half of the verse. If you have an A, B, and C, then you're just dividing them into thirds. Does that make sense? There's nothing fancy or particular about it. It's just that's what that means. So what's our little context? That means we ask, well, what happened so far? Well, we've only done two and a half verses. So... Let's just reread those two and a half verses this time the little context is easy and let's uh, think about what that little context is so this is what he had said long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature he upholds the universe. By the word of his power. All right, what's the main idea there? There's several ideas, but what's the, what one gets the most wordage? Verbiage. Of the verbiage. Divinity. Spirit. What divinity? All right. The fact that Jesus is God. That's the main point. Now, he says other points, but that gets more words. It gets the main emphasis. It gets the thrust of the passage Jesus is God. So the little context is the author has opened Hebrews with a bold affirmation of Christ's deity. Deity is just a fancy way of saying God. He's God. He's divine. Now, it had not gotten a lot more precise than that so far, but that's the idea. That's what we've said so far. Now, it's going to say some things that, to a Jewish worldview, would contradict that statement. So we have to introduce Christian thought for the next piece to work. So let's uh, work through. So, so now we've established the context. The next step is you just read, the, read the, the passage you're studying, and you ask good questions about it. Just think about what those questions are. That's step two. So step one, get your context. Step two, read it and ask good questions. So here, let's just read it first, and then we'll ask questions. So we're starting at the period, halfway through that verse. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty (laughs) on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The verse and a half really is all we're covering. So let's think about what's happening in the verse. Let's ask a question. So after making purifications for sins, he sat down. Well, very simple question we need to ask at the beginning. We have a pronoun. He. Jesus. Okay, excellent. Got it. Because if you get that wrong, the whole passage goes off, right? So, seriously, sometimes if you're not careful, you'll misread a preposition. Preposition. Pronoun. Sometimes you just miss a word, you know? So, the pronoun here, in this case, he, is a reference to Jesus. Of course, it started in verse 3 that way. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Talking about the Son of God. He is... At the right hand of the Father. Okay. Then it says purification of sins. What event is that? Okay. It's the crucifixion specific. All right, so interesting. A lot of times the Bible doesn't say things as clearly as we want to. We might would, if I was grading a paper in a seminary class, I'd be like, you got to be more precise. Yeah, you need to say the crucifixion. <laughs> the Bible doesn't care about that kind of stuff, though. It's going to sometimes, especially in Hebrews... It's going to be more literary. Um, It's not as direct. So an interesting thing in the Greek language is proper Greek was considered um, non-explicit. So you didn't say things directly if you could help it. You said it a roundabout way. You never referred to something by its proper name. Um, Not never, but you avoided that. So how many times have you seen the word Jesus so far in this passage? I haven't seen it at all. Um, son, seen son, right? That's in Greek. That's a much better thing to say than Jesus, because it's not explicit. It makes the reader think. That's just how Greek works. It's not a Christian thing or biblical thing. Just in Greek. If you wanted to write very proper Greek, that's how you would do it. Then you go read First John, and First John was more like written to you know <laughs> Mississippi people. You know. Yeah. These, Uneducated Mississippi people. Uh, sorry, that's a side note. Um, it's like God is light. You know, Very simple, different writing style altogether. So, the event here, the purification of sins, is of course, it is the cross. It is Jesus' death on the cross, which he will reference hundreds of times in Hebrews, but never explicitly. You're going to see this over and over and over again. It's just not very direct. Talk about blood talk about sacrifice but it's it's like sometimes i just want him to say jesus died on the cross something that very explicit but he doesn't do that then majesty on high after making purifications for sins he sat down at the majesty right hand of the majesty on high god the father Father. now if he was going to write it in english and be very explicit How could he have worded that phrase? God the (laughs) Father. For one, I would say, Jesus made purifications for sins, and then Jesus sat down at his dad's right hand. Right? That's much more explicit. That's how we would say it in English. It's not how they do it in Greek. And so here, but, but that is what it means. You see what we're doing here? So sometimes, because there's a language barrier... Between this writing and our language, sometimes it is helpful to just reword a passage. You ever done a Bible study, and it's got study notes, and it tells you to rewrite that that verse in your own words? You ever feel like that's a really stupid exercise? It's like, why do I need to write this in my own words? It's because of the language difference. Um, If you say something in your lingo, we, by nature, because we're English speakers will be more explicit. In the South, are even worse because we can't do the you-you thing. And we have to say y'all. I mean, it's uncomfortable to us to say a plural you, and if someone actually used a plural you in conversation, y- you would be like, whoa, 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 whoa what, what just happened? <laughs> y- you, it would mess you up because we do not like implicit language. We want it to be more explicit. So, yeah, actually, even though it feels awkward in a Bible study to do that, rewording something in your own words or saying something in your own words can be an incredibly helpful thing to do. So, um, how could y'all say? try this out? Verse 3, the first part. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Somebody give me that in good Southern English. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) He's just like his dad, yeah. He's just... Like his dad. Chip off the old block. We would say something like that, yeah. Euphemism, yeah. Get what I'm saying, right? You follow this? So, a lot of we, we might think this is a lot of wordiness. Well, it's it's really it's really good Greek, is what it is. It's my, a, real, my says that a lot. It's what? He's just like his dad. <laughs> 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 well, Sometimes
1: you know that we can mean
0: things positively or negatively, you <laughs> know, and and that's the direction it's going here. Okay, now verse 4 gets more complicated. Some of the answers to those questions I feel like were pretty obvious as we went through. So verse 4 says, Having become, well, I didn't write this on there, but who, who has become? Jesus. By having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, so follow the throw of the passage, the, the, the flow. He became superior to angels. What does that imply? At one point he was. That at some point he was not. Okay. Now, what, what we say the first point, the little context was the main first point of the opening of this paragraph. Deity of Christ. Jesus is God. Yeah. The Fair. deity of Christ, and he used to be lower than an angel. Incarnation. Right. Incarnation is everything here. If we don't get our Christology right, you can't read Hebrews. Right. This, this is, this is the bread and butter. Of Christian faith, and so Hebrews is just weaving through it. So he's become greater than angels. So let's just start here. What kind of being is an angel? Created. Created for one. Spirit. Spirit. So what do we mean? Let's flesh that out. Let's flesh that out (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I did that on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) But you said that God's a spirit. We can't see him. mm -hmm. Angels the reason we can't see God is not because he's spirit it's related to that but it's because he's infinite to see something is to confine it and, and you can't um, so he, he can't be seen in that sense angels are spirit in a sense like God but they're they're finite they're, they're in specific precise locations well on the scale of how glorious or majestic things are! Where do angels fall in relation to people? Higher than They're up. higher, at least for now. Right. right. That that can change, but for now they are higher. They have and a so. Do I? They have a choice. All right. So there's some kind of freedom operating there. Of course, right. we'll, we'll get into the tangent if we go there, but uh, fun fun conversations, but not on not yeah. on topic yeah. tonight. Um, I'll all that. That happens, you know. It's, yeah. That always happens no matter what we do. All right, so in what sense then did Jesus become, or in what sense was Jesus lower than an angel? Human. That's exactly what that means. So that means Jesus became a human. That's the point. So if we were saying this in modern English, southern explicit language, we wouldn't say having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is far more excellent than theirs. What would we say? He was human, he was was human, human. and now he's better. He's higher. But Something he else. So my notes are like, he didn't change his essence. He just changed his state. Okay. He was always yeah. God. Mm-hmm. He became a man for a while, and in that realm, he was always in the angels. But he's he Still God. Still God. Um, yes. This is going to get amazing as we go through. Oh, okay. Y'all tracking with it so far, though? So, we're going to find there's times we can say things that are technically only true about one of Jesus' natures. Because the deity of Christ was (laughs) never lower than an angel. The humanity of Christ was. So, we can't technically say it about both. All right? Then... What specific name is it that Jesus has inherited? The name above all, above all names? But is it, so we get the lingo from Paul several times. The name above every name. Well, that's a common expression. So, that the name of Jesus. That that verse. Yeah, yeah. In Philippians. Lord. Glory. Christ. What? Christ. Yeah, okay. Really, the best. Thing, somebody said it over here, "Son." That's the name Hebrews is getting at. These, all these other names aren't necessarily wrong, but like, look at verse five. It's not where we're at tonight. We're gonna start this next week. But for to which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son"? Today I've begun. Son of God. That's the specific name that's been inherited in this sense. So that's the thing that's New, the flesh of Jesus inherited a new name. Jesus was always the Son of God in His divinity, but He was not always the Son of God in His flesh. Why not? Because He didn't exist that way. You follow what I'm saying? Is the flesh of Jesus created? Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be human. Yes. It is created. So is it eternally present in the past? No. Future, yes, just like we will be, but not past. That's going to matter as we interpret other things later. Okay, so let's think about what this teaches us about Jesus. So a few blanks to fill in. Um, let's, Let's emphasize the after making purifications for sins... He sat down. So what do you think the implications are about sin? That Jesus, when he got done, he sat down. Yeah. Finished. That's the key idea. Jesus has finished making purifications for sins. He's done the work. It's complete. He's not having to go back. Nope, I totally didn't think Gene was going to do that. Uh, but he did. So i got to go back and uh, cover that too. Nope, doesn't happen, right? Because he's what? He's God. He's all-knowing. He's all of these things. And so when he does it the first time, he does it fully, perfectly, completely, absolutely correct. So he's made purifications for sins. All right? And then where is he? This is a big deal. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Now, make sure we do our Christology well. Where is Jesus? I got several different answers. Mm -hmm. In heaven, is Jesus in heaven? Yes. Yes. He's with the the Father. (laughs) are the Father (laughs) is. Jesus here? Yes. Because if you think about the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you always, to the ends of the age, his presence, he's here with us, Um, but in what sense is he sitting at the right hand of the Father? place of honor. So is this just imagery? In the flesh. In the flesh. Right, right, right. What I'm getting at, this is not imagery. This is not just some picture. Oh, Jesus has a high status next to his Father. He's sitting at his right hand. No, we we mean literally the body of Jesus incarnate for always and ever sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what that expression means. I think basically every creed includes this expression that's what they meant with that expression is that jesus in body form is sitting at the right hand of the father that's where he is he's got a precise location so is that humanity omnipresent everywhere no it's not it's fixed it's finite but jesus is not just human right so jesus is still everywhere still omnipresent. All the omnis still apply to him. So that's how Christology works. So we've got two different things going on. He's human and he's man. At the same time, and even though those are two completely different things, how many persons is it? It's just the one. Just the one person, two natures. Whereas when we think about the Trinity, we have three persons and one nature. It's it's like reverse Trinity. That's kind of what's going on here. So one being that are three persons. In this case, you got one person that is two natures, two different pieces of his being. That's that's called the hypostatic union, if you want a fancy term. Ask Zach about the hypostatic union next time you see him, and he'll be prepared though, because because well, you need an hour when he gets into the hypostatic union. Can you spell it's it? Probably not. H-Y-P-O. Hypostatic. It's made up. I made that one up 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Wow. In my pre-incur. No, wow. Okay, that's too far. Okay. So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. So Jesus is divine and human. So that's what we've said. I want you to see the two specific ways that's stated here. So the divine side would say Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Exact imprint of God's nature and then the other thing that points to his humanity is that Jesus became superior to angels. Became superior to angels. And so I guess we already asked that next question, but let's let's ask it now and see if everyone's on the same page. So in what sense was Jesus ever not superior to angels that he upheld by the power of his word, quoting verse two. When he by the, word mm-hmm. of All right. the humanity of Jesus became for a while lower than the angels. But that's not his current state. Because what is his current state? Son of God at the right hand of the Father. So, so, so we're throwing dirty words around. So we have a period that we call kenosis right here, and that's the Okay, and where, emptying. Right, where Jesus does not have all the same... Yeah, okay, so... Yeah. we're Okay, we're really getting into the depth here. So I don't want to go too far down that tangent. There's... There is an errant view that does happen here. And sometimes it's it's because Christology is not always well understood. And so people think the deity of Christ somehow surrendered deity and did his humanity thing. Which is not what we're saying. By kenosis we mean not that Jesus became less than he was but that he added something to himself. And human nature is such that when you say you add human nature to divinity, that's like making it less. You follow what I'm saying? So it emptied itself of glory by becoming a little human. So we call, in doctrine, the incarnation, it's called the humiliation of Christ. And so the kenosis idea is that that's the flesh of Jesus is not acting in godness as much as it's acting in humanness. Even though there's the whole point of the Gospels is that he keeps doing God's stuff. He walks on water and he calms storms and casts out demons and but he's very m fleshly, he still has to eat. He still has to sleep. Yeah. I'm gonna ask a question. Okay, yes. In Yes. It made you talk about this a while back because I never thought about moving the mind. He's still full of the right now. Right now. So, him maybe the right hand of God what made him above angels okay yeah so to answer that more precisely jesus let me separate i want to be careful not to commit heresy and so let me let me put put two different categories here so when we talk about god god doesn't change he can't He can't get a better name than he has. He can't get more glory than he has. He can't get smarter than he is. But when we talk about the incarnate God, when we talk about Jesus in the flesh, he can go from baby to man. He can go from can't talk to speak. He can go from can't do math to can do math. Uh, He's human in that sense. He learned how to be a carpenter. He grew in wisdom and stature with men. So, So there's this progressive element to the flesh side. And so when we say he attained a position higher than than angels, we do kind of mean a status and an actual change. Meaning glorification. So we will be in glorified bodies and we will judge angels. Point being... Wait, say that again. So we'll be in a glorified body and we'll be higher than angels? Yes. In the final state. Jesus is in that state now. But we won't be his equal in that state because he's the son of God. He's the one who inherited the name. So it's both status and, like, by care, by okay, metaphysics is <laughs> the technical term. He, by his being, he's better. So his humanity is better than ours right now. And that humanity itself is higher than angels. Does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. All right, so we've, at this point, we've done a verse and a half, and we've (laughs) asked good questions. I think we, in general, kind of follow the flow of the passage. Anybody feel lost at this point? You feel like you, you kind of know what it said. So Jesus made purifications for sin, it's a cross. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. So that's both resurrection and exaltation or ascension. And now he's up there. And in that state, his humanity has inherited a new name that is greater than angels. So he's the exact imprint of God on the God side because he's exactly the same God. And on the human side, he's exalted the name above every name, glory, honor, praise to this God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And that's the text. Now, we're not really done studying our Bible until we make application with that. Follow what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. What is the word of his power? The biblical concept of God's control over creation is spoken word. And so if you think about creation, let there be light. Think about a lot of the acts of Jesus, he speaks them rather than, than does them. Now, occasionally he, he does a hand thing or something, but usually he speaks it. Uh, let, let it be done. And that's just the biblical metaphor for God, how God exerts his d- divineness, his power in creation. And how he creates. Yeah, it's how he creates. It's, it's how the Bible expresses that divine influence. He upholds it by the word, by his spoken word. Okay. one that goes into kind of greater detail about, like, Jesus in creation and his role. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Um, well, it also gives a little bit in John 1, that like nothing was made without him, and, and he's called the word in that particular passage. Yeah, that's excellent. Okay. All right, so always look for how the passage relates to the gospel. So we're being very simplistic with this, but we're going to start simple, and we'll get more complicated as we go but sometimes staying simple could be useful as well. So maybe we'll just stay simple. We can basically put the gospel into three pieces. We can obviously be way more thorough than this, but for our purposes, we're going to make it simple. You're a sinner. Jesus saves. You can live better if you're saved. So we sin. Jesus saves. We live in him. That's the very simple, high-level way of looking at what the gospel is and does. So... We're broken, we need help. Jesus is the help through the cross and resurrection. And because we get help, we can actually live in him, have peace, hope, life, joy, transformation in him. Those are the three pieces. So I worded it a few different ways there. So we're broken, sinful, in need of a savior. Three or two, Jesus is sufficient to save through his death and resurrection. And three, we have new life in Christ looking toward our future glory. So, here's the exercise I want us to go through. What specific elements in those verse and a half that we looked at speak into or shed light on or help define um, any of those three points? Jesus completed the work of salvation for us. It's done, completed, finished. Right. So, we can say, so step two, the Jesus saves part is accomplished. That's a big deal. What, what's the application? What do we have a tendency to do in our lives in regard to our sin, our brokenness, our problems, our bad habits, our our depression, our sorrows, our, our the ways we self-soothe? I mean, what, what, what do we typically do? They're ongoing. We, basically, we're trying to do the saving part. We're trying to transform ourselves. We're trying to do the work. We're trying to redeem our sins. We're trying to find peace on our own. What's the point of the gospel, though? That's finished. It's done. He made purification for sin. He cleaned that out already. And now he's sitting down because he's finished. Now, excellent application. Now, what else can you see in the passage? He made the purification for sin. Okay. So the text doesn't say much about us yet. We'll, we'll get a lot more about that later. But it doesn't imply it. Like the idea that he had to make purification for sins does remind us that we're sinners in need of that Savior. Why is that useful for us, though, to think about? Is it useful for me to walk around and say, hey, don't forget, you're depraved. <laughs> you're a sinner. You're a horrible person. <laughs> is that useful? It keep you Okay, it depends on how you say it, right? Because I could say it in, in hopeless ways. I could say it in only the first statement sort of ways. But if you think about it, forever we will see Jesus. What's the image of Jesus in the, um, in the book of Revelation? One of the primary images. A lamb. A lamb in what state? Slain. A slain lamb. Think about that. We think of Jesus being this white lamb. But what's the actual image? Bloody! that's the image of Jesus in heaven. Why would we look at him that way? Well, it reminds us of how we got there. There's a humbling effect sin can have. Now, we're not talking about, you know, low self-esteem, sort of beat yourself up. That's not what we're getting at here. But this idea of recognizing I'm here by God's grace. What was it, uh, the guy who wrote um, Amazing Grace? Uh, John Newton, his famous statement outside of Amazing Grace was, um, I don't know much or something, but this I do know, that I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Um, And sometimes acknowledging the greatness of our sins helps us see the greatness of our Savior. And so that's an excellent application. All right, let's do two more. i got four blanks. What you guys got? The Holds the universe with the word of power. And he's big, powerful, and he stands with us from mm-hmm. that phenomenon Over we have living in him who stands with now having power That's excellent. So the God who upholds the universe with the word of his power is the one working in me right now. Oh man. What does that change? <laughs> everything anything? yeah. Okay. Is there, is there anything you can't do yeah. yeah. when you think about how big some of your struggles are even just sin, temptation things that you just can't seem to let go of this one's too big I keep going back to it having a hard time with this idol how does it help me to know that Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power he said he can he can kill it he can wipe it out completely that's an excellent word and y'all are killing this Can we do one more? Let's Let's say awkward silence helps people answer questions more, and I just broke it by saying that, so I'll continue the awkward silence now. There's at least one more. With... Oh, what you mean? What you mean? Well so he's sitting at the right hand of the father and are we're, we're doing, we're doing... Right, where are you getting that from? You're connecting this with another scripture, I think. Which is good. That's not a. anytime you can weave scripture with scripture, do it. That 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 is some of the most beautiful application you'll ever get is when I mean, you left, that. He he was. He was Right, priest. so in John fourteen he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So that where I am, you will be awesome. You will be awesome. Oh, that's beautiful. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he said before he left, hey, I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to br- I'm gonna bring you to that place. So what's the place? Right hand. Oh, my goodness. The throne room. The throne room. That's insane, right? You get a star. <laughs> Yeah, so that was actually exactly where I was going. So you can see, I would say number two is the most clear of the three pieces Jesus saves. I think number three is the second most clear. The, the We can live in him, the power. I think Scott hit that well. Even the looking forward to that future hope of glory, I think you can see in the passage. And then uh, we even caught the we are sinful part. So, man, y'all are killing me. This is great. Excellent. Except now we're done 10 minutes early. I don't know what to do. Okay. Dance. Look, dance, like, monkey, dance. Put it, save it up for later. Deep, man. Hebrews. Deep. Okay. okay, notice it still took us, you know, 50 minutes, and we did a verse and a half. I apologize <laughs> for what's coming. Do what? Can you just really quick go over what's the four? Yeah, what's the four? Miss, I'm gonna... Okay, oh, all right, all right, all right. So let's see. We did say four. Let me see what, what all we said. So I'll work in reverse order. So the last one we did was the one Monica said, was that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We wove that in with another scripture, John 14. We said, I'm, I'm going, so uh, let's see, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? I believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many rooms. Um, if we're not so, I would not have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and pre- prepare a place for you, I will come again and renew you to myself. So I'll, I'll bring you to that place, to that throne room. That's our destination. And if that's not hopeful for you, you just hadn't gotten a clear picture of it yet. So that's application. That was number four. Um, I don't remember what number three was, but Scott's was the power one. Is that the one who speaks and causes creation, the one who upholds the universe by His power? That's the one working in me. The one, the one who can do all of that is working in my life right now. The first one we got was uh, the making purifications for sins. That we needed it. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's our four. One was emphasizing that we needed it. We, we need a Savior. We talked about the, the, the bloody Lamb. right? And then the other is it's complete. And we don't need to do the work to save ourselves. That was the four y'all came up with. Y'all did that too, not me. That was actually... Okay, any questions about the text so far? I know we've only done four verses, but it won't all be this slow, though. This this is introductory. And then for, like, the next 12 verses, he's making the same point over and over and over and over again. So what we might do is set up the point and then look at each example of how he makes that point. So we might finish all of Chapter 1 next week. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So it'll feel like we're rushing compared to this. Okay? All right, what you got? Jesus is at the right hand of God. It's finished. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he, all our past, past, present, and future sins take taken care of. Yes. Okay, so I go along and I do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Sin. So should, since I know that it is forgiven, should I still at that point say, Father, I sinned, please forgive me? Yes, you like, should. I should yes. still do yes, that. Yes, you should. So I don't want to create a metric where, you get into heaven if you confess them all And get them all forgiven That's not the point of confession The point of confession is to generate And foster an attitude of repentance And so if I sin and like Oh it's covered then Really I'm not fostering repentance in that I'm, I'm just we, That's called free grace In some some literature We want costly grace like Oh I've sinned It is covered but oh, I confess it uh, This is what I did uh, restore me. We want to be able to pray like David created me a clean heart of God. We're not going to have that attitude unless it's wedded together with confession. So. Okay, go for okay, it. Paul, Paul wrote Hebrews? We don't know. Okay, that's what I was getting at. I wasn't sure if, that if it was. I know there was one book there that yeah. there, was, there was discussion on who wrote it, Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was so Hebrews or not. So early church fathers assumed it was Paul, okay. but not so much so that they put it in the right order. Because Paul's letters are listed in order, and they didn't put Hebrews in the order where it would go. But they still put it at the end of his collection because they thought it was his. Modern scholarship would say the Greek is just too different. It can't be Paul. It doesn't claim to be Paul. And then I made, I don't think it's Paul, but I do think you can make a good case for Paul in that if I was writing a treatise, a paper for seminary, it'd be very different than what I wrote in an email to a friend. Well it's I've completely heard different being described as a sermon. Yeah. Well it's 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 a written sermon. Yeah. It's not an it's not an oratory thing. It is a written sermon. And it's it's like perfect Greek. Unbelievably good. So even by like Greek standards, this is good Greek. And that, that one book. Not everywhere else. Got a question you just had this no okay all right well um what's the recommended reading yeah, the finish the chapter, the chapter. <laughs> finish the chapter you know actually quick study note if you want to really dive into a book of the bible read the book of the bible every week while we're studying so throughout the week read hebrew and you'll find that actually sitting down and reading hebrews all at once will only take you like 30 minutes it's not very big. It's only a few pages long. Um, we, if we say whole book and that sounds intimidating, it's just because you had not sat down to read it. And one of the longest books in the New Testament, I think, is Luke or John. You can sit down. Is it Acts? Luke and Acts. They're pretty close to the same. Like At normal reading speed, you could read Luke or Acts in three hours. So that means every other New Testament book can be read considerably faster. So just throwing that out there. Okay, well, any specific prayer requests...